Hi, everyone. Welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. My name is Danielle Campaign. I'm American Ambulance's medical director. I also am an emergency medicine physician at uh, CRMC, which is Community Regional Medical Center here with UCSF Fresno. Um, so today, uh, we're very excited to talk about um, hyperthermia. Uh, we're going to talk about the pathophysiology, what goes on in the body. We're going to talk about things you can do to treat it in the field, what we do in the hospital, and hopefully give you some tips and tricks on what to do the next time you get called out to a hyperthermia case. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Um, today, we have uh, two co-hosts with us. I'm very excited to have them, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajan Bakta. We'll have each of them introduce themselves and kind of tell us a little about their, their niche. Hi, I'm Patil Armenian. I'm also an emergency physician uh, at UCSF Fresno and Community Regional Medical Center in downtown Fresno, California. Uh, I'm boarded in emergency medicine and medical toxicology. So I actually specialize in poisonings, overdoses, envenomations, and uh, especially, I guess I'm like a methamphetamine and MDMA expert. Personal or professional? Um, professional. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Sajan Bakta. I am a emergency medicine resident at UCSF Fresno Community Regional Medical Center. Um, I work with uh, Dr. Armenian and Dr. Campaign. They are my attendings. And I am here uh, in Fresno because this training is second to none. Um, we see anything and everything under the sun. And I've learned so much since I've been here. And I'm excited to see everything else. Great. Well, thank you for being here. And for those of you who don't know, so being a resident means that you had to go to like uh, college and went to four years of med school and then they get to pick their specialty. And so he put, chose emergency medicine and that is four extra years of his life. He'll never get back because he gets to hang out with us. <laughs> and so four more years of training. So 12 in total. And then he'll be out in the world. We call it the real world, um, fixing people. So thank you for being here today. All right, today we're super excited to have a guest with us. Uh, we have Mr. Lonnie Taylor. He's one of our paramedics here at American Ambulance, and he's here to talk to us about a case. But before we jump into the case, Lonnie, like, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your history with American. So I've been here at American for approximately seven years. I um, started out as an EMT and became a paramedic. Uh, I've been a paramedic for over four years and um, one of the operations supervisors for a year now. So as a supervisor, we are out in the field in the SUV. We check on the crews at the hospitals. We do scheduling, answer questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your service to American. We're so happy to have you here today. Um, do you have a minute to tell us about what got you into paramedicine? Uh, what, how did it spark your interest? What was your pathway that led to being a paramedic? Um, I actually didn't really know much about paramedicine uh, until I came to take an EMT course here at the company and was first day captivated in on now I want to be a paramedic kind of changed my whole career path and allowed me to realize that being a paramedic was so much more than just driving around in an ambulance. Fantastic. Well, so glad you made that choice. Um, so today, tell us about the case. Tell us about this interesting case that uh, kind of brought you to here at the EMS podcast. 
So it was in the middle of summer. Um, me and my partner were dispatched to a call, and um, and it was one of those we don't know where the patient's at. We don't know what's going on, but someone drove past and called nine one one, and we looked around for approximately twenty minutes or so, walking into the different uh, areas, into the different stores, asking people if they had seen anyone. At that point, we had decided, you know, it's it's hot out here. Let's go get back in the ambulance. Let's drive around. And let me interrupt you for one second. So reporting parties not around. Nobody knows who called. No, nobody knows who called. Nobody knows where this person went. Um, so then we get in the ambulance and we start driving around and we're about to cancel because we can't find this person. And all of a sudden we see someone on the side of the road not looking up at us. They look disoriented, uh, sitting at the bus stop. So we get out and I start to talk to him and quickly realize that he was not in his right mental capacity whatsoever. After trying to get him to stand up with us to come to the ambulance, just touching his arm, he was drenched in sweat because he was so hot. But at that point, he had gotten to the point where he was no longer sweating and just his clothes were wet. Um, And that's when we knew there was something seriously wrong with him. Now, what protocol are you going on at that moment in your head? Or are you kind of jumping between protocols in your head? Or tell me tell me your kind of thought process. I know that happens so fast in the scene, but what are you thinking about? So the initial protocol, we thought, well, maybe this is a psych problem. Um, he's not quite acting right. And then quickly realized that this was an altered mental status protocol. Um, but on top of that, I started thinking, well, maybe he's having a stroke. Uh, just because he was acting like he was having a stroke. And then that's when it clicked. It's 110 degrees outside. He's probably having a heat stroke. Um, so that geared us into realizing we were the only ones there and we had to help him the best that we could. And the best way was to try to get him in the ambulance as quickly as we could to start to cool him down. So tell me, how do you cool him down? Like what, what, what kind of tools, for those of you who are listening in that are not from Fresno, California, it gets about 110 degrees in the summer. It's a very dry heat, everybody likes to call it, even though I don't know the difference between a wet heat and a dry heat. But it is hot, right? So you're boiling, you're sweating yourself, you're dragging this altered guy to the gurney. Is he covered in clothes? Like what do you do? How do you cool him? So he was covered. Um, he did have his clothes on. So first thing we did was actually cut his clothes off. Um, and get him into the back of the ambulance to start to see, to make sure there were no other injuries that we were missing. Uh, once we realized that he wasn't sweating and that he actually had the salt lines around his body because he had just sweat all of what he had left out, we decided to put some cool cloths on him um, and open up some ice packs the best we could and turn on the air conditioning. Now, at that point, we weren't very far from the hospital, so there was only a very limited amount of time that I could do the things that I could do, which was, at this point, start an IV and try to get uh, cool fluids in him. And the patient, at this point, was still altered and never really changed from his mental status. Um, I don't remember exactly what his mental status was, but it was definitely not enough to make a full conversation with me. Uh, so we continued transport to the hospital, and there were a few other staff patients in at that moment. So when I thought that my treatment was done at that point, it wasn't. They needed more help. Um, they needed to finish uh, unclothing him. They needed to continue to start to cool him down. At that point, they had taken his temperature and realized it was about 104, 105. Uh, so uh, they then had to 
start their process of trying to take care of him, start more IV lines and start uh, fluids so that they could cool him down to save whatever brain tissue was starting to have effect from the high temperature. I love this case because you show up to this random intersection and you don't even know where the patient is and and you're just how do you even find someone i don't even remember if we had street corners at that point of where the patient was at we just thought okay this would be the most probable spot that they're at if i were this person walking around where would i want to be walking and in that case it was where all the shops were at (laughs) good for you for looking for 20 minutes other people might have just been like, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm done turning away. When those bus stops aren't even shaded, right? So they're kind of out in the sun, just a bench, him frying more bacon. Mm. Just baking in that heat. Especially the nasty Fresno heat. And I'm pretty sure it was one of those like 110 for a whole week type yeah. week. I mean, July and August are but, just yeah, terrible. I mean, it was to the point where it was, and I remember him, he was strictly um, heat stroke. Uh, It wasn't anything internal. There was no infection whatsoever. It was just from the heat. No, it's it's a real thing. I feel like July and August always, in at least in RED, the hallways are just full of heat stroke patients, and they're just the worst months. So I feel like especially those months, you have to be like really aware. Hey, this could be happening. Let's put some more ice packs on that rig. And, just, and then, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, when you add in the Fresno population that likes to use recreational drugs like methamphetamines, where now they've used up everything and they're already running hot. Right. Their heart rate's already up. Mm-hmm. They're already a hypermetabolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at it what point can they compensate anymore? And for him, he could have easily been under the influence, which caused him to have that uh overcompensation to the point where he just stopped. And then alcohol use also signs are dry to begin with. They've been drinking a bunch of alcohol. And yeah, so you just add add any stimulant drug like methamphetamine or cocaine and then maybe some alcohol and the environmental heat and you're just a setup for disaster. Um, so I was wondering how many ice packs do you even have in the back of your ambulance? Usually we have anywhere between maybe three to five. It just kind of depends on how many have been placed in there. And so for for this patient, where did you actually put the ice packs? Uh, So I do remember putting ice pack um, behind the patient's neck. And then I did put um, another ice pack just uh, in their pants uh, near their groin area. And this was about halfway through our shift at this point already. And I believe we had already used some ice packs. So... We only restock at the point where we're pretty much empty or only have one left. So okay. there wasn't much left to use. I'd heard before that sometimes people douse like their own drinking water. Like, you know, I've got my glass of water and then they douse the patient with that. Does that ever happen? Or do you ever think about would that be a possibility or no? Um, we do think about it just because we do have bottles of water in the back of the ambulance that we can um, put on the patient. Uh, but typically in our situation, we don't quite get that far. Um, I think at the very most, ice packs is what most people can think about to putting on the patient. Uh, Just like when we have a febrile seizure kid, uh, we typically unclothe the child and turn on the air conditioning. And that's about as far as we usually go. Sometimes ice packs get put on. And at that point, we don't have much more um, time to do anything else but that. 
yeah, it's awesome. Our stat transport time is less than 10 minutes to most hospitals. And so uh, you're with them for a short time. Correct. And how long was your transport for this case? Uh, I believe the transport was about four to six minutes. So not a lot of time to do anything, but you still managed to get a bunch of stuff done in like five minutes. Yeah, definitely. And here in town, transports are, like you said, less than 10 minutes, especially if it's stat. Um, And sometimes that's only spending two or three minutes on scene with the patient and then the six to eight minutes transport to the hospital. So sometimes we're with a patient when they're stat 10 to 15 minutes total, and we have to get a lot of different things done to try to turn over to the hospital properly and have a good story of what happened. If you had more time, what do you think that you would do differently? I think if I did have more time, I would have probably grabbed out um, the sheets that we had and doused them in water uh, just so I could cover the patient a little bit more with their surface area. Um, I We didn't fully cut all their clothes off at that point, um, so I think I would have probably taken all the clothes off and then been able to cover them properly just to protect some decency, um, but then also keep those sheets covered in water as well. Um, we do have a fridge up front that sometimes has water in it that's cold, uh, so that I think would have been a good idea to give the patient um, not water to drink, but some cold water on top of them just to help keep them cool. Yeah, awesome. And I think you did a great job, you know, actually putting your hand on the patient. It can be tough in these altered patients. You don't know what's going on to just get them in the rig and get things going. But I think putting a hand on the patient, noticing that they're hot, noticing they're in a hot environment makes a difference in your treatment. Um, Once you get to the hospital, what is your report like? And what are you telling the physicians? What's important to you? and What's going on in your mind when you're talking and giving a report to the physician? So initially when we get to the hospital, um, first thing we do as we're getting the patient over, we make sure everyone's in the room that needs to be there to hear the report. Um, and we start off with the age or at this point, the approximate age of the patient um, and the chief complaint, uh, in this case, altered mental status, uh, possible hyperthermia or heat stroke. Um, and then from there on, let the physician know what type of vital signs we had when we first got to the patient, how we had found the patient. Uh, typically, they'll ask if they're found in a setting of trauma, and we make sure that we kind of distinguish what had been going on beforehand. And then uh, the most important thing, what we've done up until this point. Um, we've taken clothes off. We've noticed that he's had salt lines on him. Uh, we've taken him to the point where we've uh, checked a blood sugar, started cold fluids on him and taken, um, ice packs and tried to cool him down best we could just so that they understand it. There's a possibility that we have already dropped the temperature, maybe a degree or two. And obviously when you're at that 104, 105 point, that's a pretty critical point. So if he was at 106, 107, then there might be more, uh, brain damage and possibility or something like that. Yeah. You guys give us such vital information. I mean, you know, if there are medications around the patient or what the environment was, if they were sweating or not sweating, were they exerting themselves, all that really makes a difference. And it's really important that you guys give us that whole story. And that's really cool when you have that story for us. One of the things that I think uh, was a really good point about this case is that you didn't you didn't stay and hang out and try to do a bunch of stuff. You were like, we are going to package this guy up and transport him, uh, which, which, uh, you know, a lot of systems do this, which is where you're just all about getting your fast transport times. You know, we have a really, you know, we have really fast transport times here. 
were different from other EMS systems where it's more a stay and play kind of mentality where you're doing a bunch of stuff on the scene and then transporting them. So I just want to point that out that I think that's a really good part about this case that you, you know, you were, your mindset was, we're going to go, right? And you recognize that he was a stat patient, sounds like from the yeah, get-go. From the get-go. And so then their on-scene times are usually like less than 10 minutes, which is amazing. All the studies out there talk about how great your outcomes are and your mortality rate goes down for every minute less that you're on scene. When you look at these patients that are having these types of emergencies and you do start to cool them down or reverse some of the effects um, when they've added these extra drugs in, how often do these patients give you a surprise like, okay, they, they were altered and they were doing fine, um, but it was more of a combative altered. And now it's uh, altered because their GCS has dropped so low that the other drugs in their system have taken effect now that we've changed their temperature and then we've brought their heart rate down a little bit. Now their heart rate goes the opposite way. Uh, do you see those types of patients often? Well, the good news is if they had a fever because of whatever drug or alcohol they were on, when you cool them down, you're going to fix that too. So fixing their temperature fixes everything. Mm-hmm. So you never have to worry about that part of things. Yeah, And we do avoid Motrin. We avoid Tylenol because, you know, their kidneys could be um, damaged from the heat and they can have an acute kidney injury. And then we don't know if their liver is like in shock liver. And so it's really not telling the brain to cool down by trying to give them meds. We just do it all environmental, um, just like you guys would. Instead of giving those meds. I mean, sometimes we think we don't have anything to help these patients, but realistically we do. And that's just using the environmental stuff. Right. Because honestly, ibuprofen or Tylenol could hurt them worse. That's so true. we don't want to do that until we have their kidney function back. So it is just cooling. I mean, yeah, we get the massive fans out. Mm-hmm. We really strip naked. We have cooling blankets underneath them. Um, and then we can do active cooling mm-hmm. measures where you're putting, um, you know, cold fluids through their chest or through their bladder or through different things. But um, I think like every degree counts, just like you were saying. So even those four minutes, if you get them down a couple degrees, that's huge. And different patients, so these patients are hot because of their environment and their inability to cope anymore. Um, you know, with these medications, like antipyretic medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen, they work to decrease the brain set point for temperature, mm-hmm. right? Where these patients' brain is not telling them to be hot. It's trying to cool them down, but they just physically can't anymore. So you're not really helping them by giving them these medications mm-hmm. regardless. Yeah. Um, and I would say it's more the norm that they do come in talking and then get worse as they cool. I think it's the cerebral edema that's oh, okay. happening. Most of them do end up getting a CAT scan of their head while they're there because they are altered, especially the really hot, you know, the over 104, right? So they can have brain swelling. Um, their, you know, their organs are turning to mush. And so you can see lots of kidney damage, lots of liver damage. I feel like their blood counts are off. They have a lot of other systems going down. And so sometimes they get worse before they get better, and if they're going to get better. And that's another reason your transport time and um, getting them to definitive cooling as quickly as possible is so important. Uh, There are so many studies showing like within 30 minutes, if you can cool them, you really decrease the chance of something bad happening. Um, And every minute counts, Mm -hmm. just as you were saying with the brain tissue and um, cooling them as fast as possible makes such a difference. I got a question for the crowd. I read this thing the other day about uh, uh, sports events having like these big like vats of ice water. So like if I run my race, I can just like jump in ice water. Have you guys seen that in town? Have you heard about it? Do you recommend it? What What's the scoop on the street? Yeah. So there's a lot of studies um, looking at the best way to cool a patient. And really ice water immersion is the fastest way. 
Um, the studies are showing you can cool a patient by 0.3 degrees Celsius a minute uh, by immersing them in an ice bath, which is pretty fast. So in 10 minutes, you're dropping them three degrees Celsius. That's, that's pretty good. That's huge. Yeah. Um, how much is too quick? Oh, no such yeah, thing. There is no such thing as cooling someone off too quick. We don't want you to get hypothermic and start mm-hmm. shivering, but we want to get you to normal temperatures. Or I think they say like 100, 101. Under 39. Under 39. If you can feel that they're hot and they're altered, then you want to cool them as quickly as possible as much as you can. Yeah. And I think that might be a little bit of a, of a thought. Like in my mind, I don't want to cool them too quick. And I remember something about in paramedic school talking about you don't want to cool them too quick you want to get a steady decline so really we should just be cooling them as quick when as i we think can. um like postcode hypothermia mm-hmm. is you don't want to go too fast mm-hmm. you kind of go slow and they stay at a set point of like 34 to 35 degrees but this is not postcode like this is environmental mm-hmm. you know it just we're, we're assuming it happened quickly so we'd love to get you back to norm quickly mm-hmm. the Studies that show the ice pack cooling, which is probably what most paramedics are doing in the back of the rig, the fastest you could probably cool a patient um, is 0.3 degrees Celsius every 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, which compared to the ice water bath is 0.3 degrees Celsius every minute. So you're probably not going to drop them that quickly just by the methods that you Mm -hmm. have available to you anyways. So doing everything you can as quickly as you can is just the best bet. So do you think like if they're posting at a sporting event or the county track meet for all these kids, should they have an ice bath set up? Should they have a tarp with a bunch of ice on it just in case? Because you kind of could like strip their backside naked, lay them in ice and then put them in the rig. And what's your thoughts, crew? I would definitely be for having some sort of ice bath or even just before leaving with this patient. Can you get me a bucket of ice and or a few bags of ice? Um, I mean, in that case, take the ice with you. And curl them up in the blankets or something with ice, even though it's in the blanket. Yeah, I wonder if they could lay on their back. Yeah, on on ice. ice. I mean, I think that we should be having ice at like major planned events that you know are happening in the heat. For example, the state cross country championships are in Woodward Park every year, and usually it's about 100 degrees when they're running. So I would definitely say like be prepared. Maybe we should should start having ice around or like a tarp with ice on it that somebody could lay on while you, you know, work on transporting them. Um, but, you know, I think when something is planned and you know it's going to happen, then we should plan for it too. Right. And then elite athletes, everybody thinks they're not going to have heat stroke, their condition, they train in the heat all the time. They have some of the worst cases, I feel like, because maybe they push themselves too hard or, you know, there's a race they want to win. And even though they're not sweating anymore, they're still running it. So I think we can't say just because it's the elite championship of country, you know, yeah. cross country racing, we've got to be prepared. I know our ambulances are on standby for a lot of these incidents anyways. So, I mean, definitely something could change where we make sure that we have some sort of ice nearby and not just our ice packs. Now, I read a story, another study. And so I want to ask um, the experts in the room and yourself, what about just dipping your hands in? Like I heard that if you just stick your hands in a cup of water, that's all you got to do is like just cool cup of down. water or, or ice, cup of ice, water. ice, like an ice bath. So if you had like, imagine your big gulp because you just gone to 7-Eleven because these guys stay up all the time. They could dump that out, just put like ice water in and just stick their hands in only. So we've been teasing Danielle about this. She's been telling us about this for a long time. And I actually looked it up and there are studies showing that cooling the glabrous parts of the skin. Wait, wait, so I, halt, halt the phone, everybody. Glabrous? Has anybody ever heard of that word? Sounds like a dirty word. Let's hear, let's hear what it is. Glabrous skin is 
uh, are your cheeks, your palms, and your soles. And placing the ice packs in these areas actually double the rate of cooling um, when just placing them around the places we typically place them, like around the neck or in the groin, which is thought to be nearest the large blood vessels, which is why we put them there. Um, but there tends to be a lot of um, flow around the skin of your skin, of your cheeks and your palms and soles. So that helps too. I guess that makes sense. They're super flushed, right? They're mm -hmm. super vasodilated in their face. So you're like, sorry, sir, let me put these two ice packs on either side of your cheeks. <laughs> well, that makes sense because, I mean, you're outside in the wintertime. Your hands are steaming and your feet are usually first steaming in your face. That's a good and point. Those typically are those spots that are steaming because you don't walk out and your armpit doesn't start to steam. <laughs> <laughs> but the parts that are outside and in the open. That sounds like an easy thing to do. Right. Ice packs to the cheeks. I mean, would you almost douse the head in water, then ice pack the cheeks? Strip down their clothes. I'm trying to think you've got two minutes to do this, right? Well, I think or if if you were in the case where your temperature was 105 and you were really hot, but or it was 105 outside, you're running hyperthermic, what would you in your right mind want to do? You would want to put your feet in ice yeah. just because it's more comfortable. But not only that, you feel like that's going to cool you off pretty quick. And I mean, if the studies show that it is going to do it, why not? What I think is important too for our crews, you know, they stand standby on these calls. They're standing out when it's 110 for three and four hours watching the cross country runners come by. I know sometimes you can get in the rig and cool off a little bit, but just knowing, hey, if I put an ice pack on my cheeks, put my hands in, I can cool myself down. Because mm -hmm. especially when you go on fires, you know, the fire crew, sometimes they become the victim. And so just teaching them how to cool themselves also. We're going to talk about favorite cooling techniques. I have I have a good one, too. Ooh, let's hear it. So my Well, my favorite is evaporative cooling. So that's when you um, kind of moisten their skin, either with the sheet, like you were saying, and then stick a fan on them. In the case of the back of the rig, it's going to be the air conditioning. Um, but... I don't know what if what if we did have like a little handheld fan or something. Um, so there was a really good study done where they had all these hyperthermic patients, just boiling people, uh, that they put on these mesh hammocks and they would do evaporative cooling with just like just some water and fans, top and bottom. So they would strip them down, put them in these mesh hammocks, <laughs> do like top and bottom cooling, and they cooled them down just as fast as a full body ice bath. That sounds like a naked resort, right? Naked right. people yeah. in hammocks getting fanned <laughs> by palms. But I Who feel does like, that study? I mean, I don't it's know. Probably Switzerland. It wasn't me. <laughs> Actually, it was in Saudi Arabia. So I'm not even it's kidding. hot there. It's very hot. It's, it's very, very hot. hot there. You know, desert. Um, so no, but I just feel like you know this. That's something that we can also use, which is if you do have access to even just like a moist sheet. I mean that that just even having that on the skin. And then evaporating, that could be. Well, I think a the really point is maybe get them naked too. before they get in the rig or get them naked as you're yeah, in the strip rig. Them, the strip them. Strip them. And I know a lot of times we don't do that because people are around, but maybe this is one of the cases where it's like get you, in with some help before you start driving, get them naked, yeah. put them on a cool sheet, start your AC. I don't think see that being much of a problem because we're pretty good at stripping people and not having to worry about it, especially when it comes to trauma patients. I mean, we strip them and flip them pretty quickly out in the field. So. I think it's just taking that mindset over to the hyperthermic patients and, That's hey, strip them and flip them, get ice on them, get them naked in the back of the unit, and then worry about covering them up later. Right. Uh, you'd rather save their life than save a little bit of dignity at that point. 
When we always say trauma patients, you have this golden hour, right? Which is why we do everything so fast. Well, hyperthermia is kind of worse. It's a golden half hour. Uh, and so I think you can approach it with the same kind of speed that you would for any of these really bad trauma patients. Yeah, like the sense of urgency is the same or worse. Yeah, you really want to you want to get them to a temperature of 39, which is about 102 degrees within 30 minutes. So you're not trying to freeze them like a popsicle, but even to get them to 102 from, you know, 105, 106, that's going to take a lot of effort. But really, it's that that change within 30 minutes for you to have your best outcomes. Yeah, get him out of the sun. Yeah. And Lonnie, you summed it up really well when you were describing in your head your thought process. You called it a stroke caused by heat, extremely altered in a hot environment. And that's what we call heat stroke is uh, altered mental status with an elevated core body temperature. But uh, heat illness can be a spectrum of disease. Um, Anything from mild aches and pains, some nausea, dehydration, um, and that's what we maybe call heat illness, sometimes If you're really dehydrated and um, having muscle aches and pains, we can call that heat exhaustion. And it's really important to notice heat exhaustion even. That can progress to heat stroke. And the reason we care about all these things is because heat stroke really has a high mortality rate. Um, In a 2006 critical care medicine paper, they quoted a mortality as high as 63% in all patients with heat stroke that came in. That's with treatment of some kind. So you're telling me 63 people out of 100 are going to die and we do everything right. Right. So that's so why this is definitely a problem. Exactly. So we really have to focus on cooling these patients really quickly. Yeah. So speaking of speed, I think the first time we started talking about this 30 minutes to cooling um, was based on uh, the 1995 heat wave in Chicago. So I guess there was a huge heat wave there. Many people died. Um, And in a paper from uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1998, they looked at all these people and a fifth of them um, died in the hospital. And then from those who lived, a third of them kind of had really longstanding disabilities of like many sort, like they weren't doing well. And another third of them died within a year. So once they were exposed to heat stroke once, basically within a year, half of them were dead. Um, And that's the first time where they talk about, you know, when, how fast should you cool people? And they were basically like 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, you should get them below 102 degrees. Um, So not like cold, like a popsicle, but just cool enough where your brain and your kidneys and your liver and all your organs can just at least work normally again. So we're going to call that the golden half an hour for heat stroke. Goal is 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah. Now let's just all nerd out for a minute here and talk about like what's actually going on in the brain. Like what's going on with those proteins? What's happening inside of us? Why are we altered when we get 105, 106? Why, Why can't I function through this? Aren't I superwoman? Basically, the thought is that the proteins uh, just get denatured at that point. In a patient who can't effectively cool themselves, the proteins in that high of a temperature just start to break down. The cells can't handle it anymore. You're burning through so much energy. um, The cells are just dying. And the brain is encapsulated by this thing giant skull that prevents it from releasing all that heat. And it gets affected really quickly and really fast. And it's hard for the brain cells to effectively um, get better. And what's the likelihood of just putting a ice 
bucket on someone's head and cooling down through the skull, getting the brain to cool down directly. I mean, besides packing ice in their brain. Yeah, I think the brain is only getting cooled by the dilated capillaries of the skin. So if you, mm. you know, especially in kids, their surface area of their head is huge. As we get uh, bigger, our surface area is not as huge in our head. But cooling mm. any part of the body, think of the skin as its own organ. Say as much of that skin I can cool, it will get cooler blood back to the brain. Well, thanks, everyone. That's been an amazing discussion with Lonnie and all of us about the pros and cons of all these different articles and different things. Um, but to have a great take-home point we brought in to this podcast, uh, Mr. Steve Melander, our COO of American Ambulance, to kind of roll out what's going to be the American Ambulance way of treating heat illness. All right. So we live in a very hot environment, as you all know, and heat illness, subsequent heat stroke can be a real concern for our patients. So based upon the recommendations from from this podcast and our physician panel, we are going to first and foremost activate uh, passive cooling by undressing our patients and cooling them off, getting them into the nice cool environment or a cooler environment of the back of the ambulance with the air conditioner running. Additionally, we're going to uh, place the ice packs to the patient's cheeks and hands as per the recommendation. Uh, initially, we only carried four ice packs per units, but we are going to increase that stocking level to eight to be able to meet this objective. Additionally, we carry cool IV fluid up in the um, air conditioned compartment in the back of the ambulance, so we'll be able to provide that. And um, putting all those pieces together, we think we're going to be able to do some pretty... Um, some pretty substantial cooling for our patients and deliver them to the emergency department in, in much better condition. Perfect. That sounds wonderful. Thanks for coming in and joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. So if we have to remember three things. We're going to go around the room. Everyone's going to say one thing that they recommend the medic that's driving around right now in the hot summer heat of Fresno to remember on their next heat stroke case. We'll start with you, Lonnie. What's the first thing you want everyone to remember from this story? Uh, take the patient out of the heat so that they're not sitting in the hot sun, even though it may be hot in the back of the ambulance, getting them in the back with some sort of airflow is more beneficial than them being outside. Perfect. Dr. Botka, what's your take home? I think I'm going to put in a plug for my glabrous skin surfaces. I'm going <laughs> to just like that word. I <laughs> uh, recommend that any ice packs anywhere is going to help, but Try thinking of the cheeks and the palms and the soles to really try and effectively cool the patient a little bit better. Great. Dr. Armenian, take home points. I think speed. Just, you know, try to transport them quickly while also trying to get the ice packs on them and maybe a wet sheet on them. Um, but I think speed is my take home point. Thanks, everyone. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.